Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology podcast. My name is Claire Roden, and I'm an adolescent medicine physician. I'm Paula Hillard, the uh, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. So we we are a team on the podcast. We are here to discuss some of the, really highlight some of the articles from the August and October 2022 editions of the journal. Uh, We're a bit behind because, because of things. For sure. And we read Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. Mm-hmm. And Claire, this was your selection and your choice. I think it's an excellent choice. I I really think it's a it's a good book that should be read by lots and lots and lots of people, including thinking about some of our patients may benefit from reading it as well. So you you suggested it. Why don't you run with it? I love this book. Um, I did it as the audiobook, uh, which is narrated by the author. Um, and the thing I loved about it was that it's very accessible. Like it's it's actual science written in a way to be accessible by a non-scientific audience. The point of this book is to discuss the wide range of normal for quote unquote female sexuality. The author does acknowledge that she means cisgender female sexuality because there's like no data about anything other than cisgender female sexuality. She goes through of, um, and in a way that's extremely non-pathologizing, so very normalizing, and also very focused on the idea of sex is a part of life. It's an activity of daily living. It is normal. It should be nice. And if it's not normal or not nice or something is going on that's making it an unpleasant experience, that people should feel comfortable reevaluating what they want out of sexual experiences, including deciding not to. Like, that's fine. It is fine. And she she talks about learning what we have learned, talks about cultural influences, talks mm-hmm. about our accelerators and our brakes in terms of sexual desire, sexual interest. You can have your feet on the brake and the accelerator at the same time. That was wild to me because it's it's based in actual data. It's based in actual science. It's approachable and could be really nice for helping adolescents not feel so without help and without a guide. I agree. I love it. I love it. So we would recommend that one really highly. Put that one on your list to read if you haven't already. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've been debating a bit about what we were going to suggest as the next book to read. I think Claire chose the last one. I'm going to choose this next one. And and Claire may or may not be wild about it yet. She doesn't know. But this is a book I heard about on um, NPR, and it's called Graceland at Last, uh, Notes on Hope and Heartache from the American South. And the author is uh, lives in Nashville, and she talked on on the uh, interview on NPR about uh, how she is seeing climate change in her own backyard. She's seeing changes in the birds that visit her backyard. She's seeing changes in the flora and fauna. Uh, all around her. And so climate change coming home to roost and and biting us really, but how it's personal, how what we experience is personal. And so she writes beautifully. Um, The the author is Margaret Renkel, R-E-N-K-L. And so I really enjoyed this book. Uh, And Claire, you had a couple of other suggestions for for books related to... um, climate change, uh, bringing nature home? Yeah. So 
bringing nature home, I think of it as the uh, the gateway of, in that book, he is a very short chunk about why you should care about bugs, why you should care about native plant gardening, and then what plants are native to your area and how many bugs they support, etc., which links into one of his big public endeavors, which is something called the uh, Homegrown National Park, which is the idea that the largest amount of outdoor space in the United States is your lawn. It's all the lawns and how we can use our lawns to encourage biodiversity and conservation. So I, I'm a big Doug Tallamy fan and my front yard is is not a lawn. I'm very proud and of it. Mine is also not a lawn uh, as well. So um, the the lawn is long gone. And uh, so I think these these will be kind of nice for people to look at and and see what they think. And, and a little bit of, of uh, uh, a little diversion from pediatric and adolescent gynecology yeah. here. So. If you have suggestions about books you think we should read or like other media we should consume, movies, podcasts, you read a cool article in a magazine or something, um, you can send us an email at jpagpodcast at gmail.com, which is spelled exactly how you think it is. So let's Sounds get on good. with our, our journal discussions. Okay, let's talk about it. So the August issue, I think um, Claire and I both agreed that the article, the top of the list article that we want people to look at and know about. And, and finally, we are starting to see, this is, this is called, uh, the article is titled, The Launch of a Girl's First Period Study, Demystifying Reproductive Hormone Profiles in Adolescent Girls. And this is by Natalie Shaw and colleagues. She is the senior author. Um, at uh, NIH. And this is an amazing study that we say to each other, why are we only now seeing this study that is looking at hormone profiles in the transition to ovulatory menstrual cycles that all girls go through? And so we're finally going to see some data. We're finally going to see some girls followed longitudinally. How do ovulatory cycles develop? How do we go from anovulatory cycles, some cycles that are not good ovulatory cycles that have a uh, inadequate luteal phase, um, and ultimately the majority of women end up with ovulatory regular menstrual cycles. But how does that transition happen? Yeah. So this is a fabulous study. Oh, I'm so excited about this. Um, you know, for something that impacts about half the planet, it is shocking to me that we don't know much about what is normal and how we go from not having periods to having regular predictable periods, especially because it's so common. Um, other things in this study that I'm excited about, uh, participants are able to undergo at least two breast MRIs to look at breast development, which I get lots of patients who come see me for questions about breast health and breast anatomy. And it's another area where we don't know anything. Most of what I know about breast development actually comes from my work in gender care, as opposed to my knowledge as a pediatrician. So I'm so excited to discover more about normal development. There are, of so, course, some limitations in this study, but I think overall, it's a really wonderful place to start. And I look forward to it. I really look forward to it. And it's it's one of those things. This is really sort of an introduction to all of us. 
of, of this study uh, from this group. And it's really going to be one of these things that we need to stay tuned to read all of their findings. There are going to be lots of findings from this study. And I'm so excited um, and really look forward to seeing the results. Yeah. You know, Paula, it seems like I wish I had thought of this because it is like you do this study and you have made a career out of doing the thing that was obvious, but so obvious that no one else had done it. I've been thinking about this study for years and years and years. I've been realizing that I didn't have the wherewithal to do it. I didn't have the uh, the knowledge or the resources to be able to do this study. But ever since I started thinking about the menstrual cycle and and realizing how much we don't know about it, I have wanted to see this study done and and thought about doing it myself, but realized that I wasn't in the place to do it. So I'm delighted that it's being done. Oh, yeah, this is going to be wonderful. So take a look at the introduction, the launch of the study. I did want to mention it because I, I find this one fascinating. Um, the article is titled Evaluating Provider Self-Disclosure in Adolescent Contraceptive Counseling. And oh, I did see topic, that. I like you know, that. Yeah. Isn't that. Isn't that fascinating? And and how we could not have seen this article years ago when I first started doing OBGYN, most of the providers were male. And so they mm -hmm. didn't have experiences with um, contraception. And so they weren't speaking from experience. And so the uh, the authors, uh, Jessica Shim, uh, Stephen Staffa, and Francis Grimstead looked at whether people disclose or what people feel about uh, about disclosure. Uh, it was a survey and, um, you know, do you think it's appropriate? Um, findings, 36% reported that it's usually or always appropriate. 38% were kind of right there in the middle, neither appropriate nor inappropriate. 26% said usually or always inappropriate. So we don't agree on whether it's appropriate or inappropriate. And I think the answer for most of us is it depends. Um, for many of us, it's not a routine kind of thing, but might occasionally happen for the right patient at the right time, or if the patient asks, um, that sort of thing. Um, but um, so many female OBGYNs in particular use an IUD, for contraception. And when so few adolescents do, sometimes I find that self-disclosure can be helpful overall. So I have to say that I'm in the, the camp of sometimes it's helpful. Yeah. I will say I've had patients ask me directly, do you have one of these? They're specifically asking me if the procedure hurts, right? This, that's yeah. always the context yeah. is like, do you have an IUD? Did it hurt when you have it done, had it done? And I think if your patient is asking you that very pointedly, like they're asking you from one human to another human, they're yeah. not necessarily asking you from a child to a kid doctor. I think it's always fine to talk to your patients like they're humans and you're a human. Being human is good. Yeah, <laughs> I think like, we are. We yeah. Are. I mean, sometimes yeah. I'll ask them, do you want me to talk to you like we're both people or do you want me to talk to you like I'm a doctor and you're a patient? And then they'll say like, oh, I want this. But um, when they're asking me, does the procedure hurt? Do you know? Have you had one done? It's like, okay, we'll talk about this like we're people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I like that way of framing it, Claire. I think that's good. Patients sometimes ask me, what about when I talk about the risks and talk about the possibility of expelling the IUD, how would they know if they've expelled it? 
And what I say is early in my career, I used to think that an IUD wouldn't be expelled without lots of pain and bleeding and that people would obviously know about it. But I personally have expelled two IUDs um, and didn't realize that I had expelled my IUDs. I think that that's helpful to know. You may not know if you expel your IUD. That's hilarious. Of course that happened to you, gynecologist. (laughs) I usually tell patients that I've had, so if we're in the land of TMI, I tell patients I've had two IUDs. One of them, the procedure was excruciating and I hated and I thought I was going to die. And the other one I didn't, it was like nothing. I leave out the part where the one that was like nothing was postpartum. (laughs) And truthfully, I've had a hormonal IUD and a non-hormonal IUD. And I tell my patients that like, I've had both kinds. I thought they were both fine. Depends on so what anyway. you're hoping to get out of it. Yeah. So nice to see this as a study and, yeah. you know, to validate and think about that it may sometimes be more than okay to talk yeah. to your patients, human to human. Yeah. Just talking human to human because they're, they're asking you human to human. Yeah. Is it going to yeah. hurt? The article experiences with menses in transgender and gender non-binary mm. adolescents. Beth Schwartz et al. Just the reminder, and I think those of us who see kids who are transgender male and gender diverse, gender non-binary, talking at some, uh, at least asking about the experience of menses for these individuals, because when asked, they will often say that it's a problem. It may contribute to to dysphoria. Let's go on to October. Thinking about the October issue. Claire, which which articles from the October issue struck you? Is this the one that has the uh, the Frank Bureau articles? Mm-hmm. Ah, we already talked to Dr. Bureau about puberty, and I have already informed many of my residents that they need to read the read the articles about early puberty. Um, the other article that I wanted to highlight in the October edition um, I really liked fertility in individuals with differences in sex development provider knowledge assessment. The PI is Veronica Gomez-Lobo at uh, NIH. I thought this was a really interesting study. So this is a study that was evaluating if people who take care of patients with DSD, differences of sexual development or intersex condition, the appropriate nomenclature depends on who you ask and what context you're in. If those providers feel confident in providing counseling regarding future fertility, I'm pretty sure I got this survey sent to me through three different listservs, um, as I'm not typically someone who provides care for DSD, or I certainly am a non-expert in that area. I didn't respond any times. Even among a you know a small self-selected group of people who are replying to the survey, who are interested in discussing or who feel competent counseling on fertility in DSD, even in that population, there's just a lot of discomfort. There's a lot of lack of knowledge and a lot of like uncertainty about what we should be saying. So it is notable. The response rate was low, which may in part be due to the overlap in the various listservs, as as you note, Claire, Uh, but a low response rate. But still, um, again, those with the most interest uh, would be more likely to respond. And 
Um, there are gaps in knowledge in what we talk about and what we know related to fertility. There actually are gaps in in anyone's knowledge on the topic as well. So so that's the other factor uh, here. Is it it may not be known. It's not, it may not just be that we don't know it. Uh, it may be that issues around fertility are not as well um, studied as we would like. Well, there's a little qualitative chunk in this manuscript as well that highlights that many, many providers, if they're providing that counseling, they're providing counseling surrounding uncertainty. Like this is expensive and we don't know if it's going to work. So I'm, I'm, appreciative that it is a bit more of a mixed method study because I find that that provides a bit more insight into how these things are working out. I did also want to highlight that there were some respondents who said they would not discuss fertility, like they wouldn't bring up fertility if the patient's potential gametes did not match their expressed gender. I find it sort of interesting because it almost implies that like if there's gender incongruence, clearly these people don't want a parent or if there's gender incongruence, I'm very uncomfortable bringing it up. Or if there's potential gender incongruence, I don't know what to do or just what have you. It was a small number. I would love to explore it more. I think a lot of this needs to be explored more. The other article that I really liked is... Um, titled The Association Between Childhood Adversity and Risk of Dysmenorrhea, Pelvic Pain, and Dyspareunia in Adolescents and Young Adults. And this was a systematic review. This was by Delia Musawi and Sonia Grover from Australia. And I, I think it's important and it caught my eye in part because I think pediatricians and adolescent medicine folk think and know a little bit more about adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, than do we as gynecologists. It's just not quite so much of our training and what we think about and know. But to me, it makes it is absolutely obvious and makes perfect sense that these particular conditions would potentially be associated with ACEs. Um, so um, I think important to think about, there were 19 articles that they included in their systematic review of the 560 some that they identified um, and not unexpectedly an association between the number and severity of ACEs and the risks of dysmenorrhea. Um, and then there were some other differences in how strong the associations were and how consistent they were related to pelvic pain and dyspareunia. But but I think the message is we need to pay more attention to ACEs. And um, I know in our adolescent medicine clinic, they screen for adverse childhood experiences. We don't in our PAG clinic. And I wonder if we should. Thoughts about that, Claire? So in my adolescent clinic, Pretty much everyone gets a like a routine ACEs screening, mm -hmm. um, so I think that's that's because it's it's adolescent medicine and like we yep. deal in the medicine of ACEs in children. Um, I've been really interested in um, looking at benevolent childhood experiences or taking a strengths based approach to studying people who have had adverse childhood experiences and what helps them not have some of these bad outcomes that you know we studied a lot because if you are a kid who's had some bad stuff happen in your childhood or you're an adult who's had some bad stuff happen and all you hear about is how the fact that your mom died when you were young means that you too will die young of something terrible mm -hmm. if that's all you hear about it's hard to envision any other future 
So I'd yeah. love to look at some more strengths-based studies of ACEs and sexual health. I think that'd be really, really interesting. Can I highlight another article? I was going to highlight another one too, and we can decide how many will fit. <laughs> ah, so many articles, so much good science. <laughs> I wanted to briefly mention pediatric vulvovaginal graft versus host disease, a retrospective cohort study and literature uh, review by Tasm Dalek McElroy. And basically highlighting the fact that we don't often, very often look um, or pay attention to this possibility in our patients who have had a hematopoietic uh, stem cell transplant. Um, and it can occur and it can cause problems. And so asking about symptoms and then doing an exam to assess in those patients is something that we probably ought to be doing. I find that I get a lot of referrals for genital rashes and pediatric vulvovaginal graft versus host disease is not usually in my top 10. It's honestly not usually in my top 100 on my differential and I, I should move it up. Well, in the right population, you need to think about it. So, yep. yep. And then I wanted to highlight comparing the evaluation of abdominal pain in adolescent females at a pediatric versus general emergency department mm -hmm. uh, by Amanda J. Onwuka et al. So when I was a fellow in adolescent medicine, I spent a lot of time moonlighting in urgent cares, general pediatric urgent cares. So this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. As I feel like I spent many hours of my life yelling about, no, you really do have to do an exam. I mean, for me, this study just shows a lot of the stuff that I, I I feel like I experienced during that time of my life, but um, it's a it's a nice way to highlight that sort of sexual and reproductive health care in the emergency room. Honestly, regardless of adult or pediatric environment, is not as comprehensive as it probably should be for people who are coming in with complaints that seem like obvious SRH problems. Documenting the last menstrual period, documenting menarche, documenting sexual activity, uh, doing a pregnancy test um, as, a, you know, just routine kinds of things that ought to be happening for all female adolescents. For example, documented contraception is actually, it looks like it's in the adjusted data, more likely to happen in a pediatric ER than a general ER. However, it's still less than half the time. Similarly, STI testing is more likely to happen in a pediatric ER versus in a general ER, but it's also less than half the time. It's maybe marginally better in some environments, but still not great. So we need to continue to be evangelists for PEG-related kinds of things, to talk to our colleagues in emergency medicine, and to continue to talk to peds and GYN residents who may be seeing these patients as and well. And ER residents. Yeah. ER residents, absolutely. You know, yes. I will say one of my favorite bits of learning that I did in fellowship was when my attending, I believe it was Dr. Farida Hamid at uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, said to me that anytime someone came in with belly pain or discharge, you really had to do an exam. You had to do a genital exam because in her words, what kind of doctor doesn't look at the part of you that's bothering you? I love it. I, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, I wish I had such pithy advice that came from her. <laughs> you can perpetuate that advice and I'm sure you do. So <laughs> citation needed. It's Farida. <laughs> Sounds good. So lots to look at in these two issues. Um, thanks, uh, Claire, for 
bringing our attention to these. Uh, we look forward to talking again um, about the December issue, which is out already, but we will save it for a subsequent uh, episode of our podcast. Yeah, um, I will say that there is some there's some really interesting articles in the December issue I look forward to talking about on the podcast. So um, again, this is Claire Roden, Adolescent Medicine at Penn State. And Paula Hillard, um, Editor-in-Chief of JPEG, wishing you all happy holidays and happy reading of JPEG. If you have any suggestions you'd like to make to us, you can email at jpagpodcast at gmail.com. Happy Festivus, et cetera, from the JPEG podcast. Thank you.